This is a podcast for the Florence School of Regulation for their series Energy Law and Policy. And uh, we will talk today about uh, the case General Electric Alstom, a merger investigation, and about the implications for uh, energy law and competition law. I'm here today with uh, Pierre Loaic. Hello, everybody. So my name is uh, Pierre Loaic. I'm uh, currently a policy officer in DG Energy at the European Commission. And until recently, I was uh, a case handler uh, at DG Competition, where I was uh, involved, among other cases, with the investigation of the G Alstom merger. Just um, a tiny word of, of caution. I mean, all views expressed here are personal views, of course, based on my experience and my work uh, with, with the case, but should not be regarded as, uh, of course, binding the, the Commission in, in any way. Thank you, Pierre. And my name is Gianni De Stefano. Uh, I work for the law firm Hogan Lovells, uh, and uh, I was also implicated in the case, uh, working uh, as uh, an external counsel to Alstom. Uh, my views uh, uh, also do not uh, do not are personal and uh, cannot be attributed to either uh, my law firm Hogan Lovells, uh, nor of course to Alstom uh, or any other parties uh, uh, involved in the deal. And uh, in general, today Pierre and I will be uh, talking. About about publicly available information based on our experience but uh, only uh, public uh, information uh, as uh, you can find uh, on the website of DigiComp and elsewhere. So today to give you a very brief outline of what we will be talking about uh, it will be uh, first of all we will give a, a small a brief background a timeline of the case then Pierre we will be assessing the relevant markets and players we will be going through the competition issues and remedies and the theory of arm. Uh, we will also be assessing the remedies that were necessary to address the competition issues of the various regulators around the world. Then we will say a few words about the international cooperation and uh, something that is uh, very interesting for many uh, people that are listening to this uh, podcast, uh, the implications of this case for industrial policy and the Europe's uh, energy needs. So just to start with a brief background uh, on the case, uh, this case was a merger investigation. Uh, the merger was the acquisition by General Electric, we will be using the acronym GE to refer to General Electric, of the energy businesses of Alstom. Now, GE uh, is a diversified manufacturing technology and services company, and three of GE's divisions were directly related to Alstom's activities, uh, namely GE Power and Water, GE Energy Management, and GE Transportation. On the other side, the target of the acquisition was Alstom. Alstom is a French multinational company active in electricity generation and rail transport markets. The G Alstom deal was valued at more than 12 billion euros and it was conditionally approved in September of 2015 by the European Commission and the US Department of Justice. It was approved conditionally because the parties had to submit remedies in order for the regulators to approve the deal. In addition to the European Union and the United States uh, uh, approvals, uh, the deal had triggered over 30 filings worldwide, so merger control filings uh, as well as uh, uh, foreign investment uh, uh, filings. Uh, 
Now, we will go quickly through the timeline in this case. In April 2014, G and Alstom announced uh, the bid for G uh, announced the bid for the Alstom energy assets. Immediately, we started the pre-unification contacts with both the European Commission and the Department of Justice. That was uh, in May 2014. A, a few weeks thereafter, in June 2014, there was an agreement between the French state, Alstom and G. And this shows how political this case was because the French state had to authorize under their foreign investment regulation the deal. And throughout the case, we could feel the importance of the deal on a political basis. The merger control filings to the EC and the Department of Justice uh, happened uh, after several months of pre-notification contacts, that was in January 2015. Uh, a few weeks thereafter, between February and March 2015, the European Commission issued the decision opening the phase, the so-called phase two, so an in-depth investigation, and the Department of Justice, the DOJ, issued a so-called second request. In June 2015, there was a so-called statement of objections where the European Commission uh, set out their allegations regarding the case and the, 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 the competition issues that they saw in the deal going forward. And uh, a month thereafter, in July of uh, 2015, we had a oral hearing before the European Commission. Uh, in August 2015, there was the submission of the final draft of the commitments, uh, the, the, the remedies addressing the competition issues of the regulators, uh, the so-called commitments, uh, and the form RM, uh, so-called form RM, to the European Commission. Uh, so it was August 2015, may I say, uh, last minute uh, in the timeline uh, of the investigation. So in September 2015, the EC finally adopted the clearance decision and the DOJ filed settlement conditional on the remedy slash divestment. We can refer to the remedies also as the divestment because uh, the remedies consisted uh, actually in a divestment to a third party of part of the business <coughs> that was acquired uh, by GE. And uh, in October 2015, uh, the European Commission and DOJ approved the purchaser of this divestment and the final closing of the deal happened in November 2015, so uh, 18 months after the announcement of the deal. So I now pass the floor to Pierre to talk about the relevant <coughs> markets. Thank you, Gianni. So a few words on, on the products and the markets that were concerned by, by this investigation. I think it's important to, to remind that most of the markets uh, concerned by the transaction were found not uh, to create any sort of worry from a competition angle, let's say 80% in terms of employees and, and sales, uh, in particular Alstom's activities in the, in the sectors of renewables, uh, grid, so electricity transmission infrastructure, and as well in relation to, to steam uh, and nuclear assets. Um, so what were the markets where the Commission did find some competition concerns? This was uh, the market for the sale and servicing of the so-called heavy-duty gas turbines 
operating at 50 Hz frequency. So, so what is this? Uh, heavy duty gas turbines are basically gas turbines that are used in large scale uh, gas power plants. In this case, gas turbines with an output of, of more than 90 megawatts. At a frequency of 50 Hz, why is it important? Because not all electricity markets in the world have the same frequency. In this case, we were interested in the 50 Hz frequency, which is, which is the one that we have in, in Europe. Uh, importantly, although we defined um, a, a, a market uh, for all HDGTs, heavy-duty gas turbines above 90 megawatts, we also assessed possible sub-segments in this market for medium HDGTs, large HDGTs, and, and very large HDGTs based on, on the various possible outputs of these, uh, of these machines. And we conducted the competitive assessment both on the overall market and within these various segments. On the geographical scopes, uh, scope of the market, we conducted the competitive assessment both at EEA level uh, and at worldwide level, excluding China on the basis what, that we found some specific competitive constraints uh, with regard to, to China. So, as regards the parties in the market for the sale and servicing of 50 Hertz HDGTs, who were the main, the main players? I think we can describe the, the market as a, as a fairly concentrated market with only a, a limited number of players, um, with two large players being GE and Siemens, uh, GE being a, a market leader with, in most market definition, more than 40% of the, of the market shares, uh, Siemens being around 30%. And Alstom being number three or four globally, um, and putting a bit more constraint in the EEA in Europe compared to, to let's say, a, a, a global market definition. A fourth player would be Japan's Mitsubishi Hitachi Power Systems, MHPS, um, very active in the domestic Asian markets. Uh, both in the 50 Hz and in the, in the 60 Hz market. And additionally, a fifth player being Italy's Ansaldo, uh, having a somewhat more limited product portfolio range and also a more limited geographic uh, focus, let's say. So back to Gianni on the, on the competition issues. Yes, so... Uh as, uh, as Pierre just said, uh, the transaction was found to be unproblematic uh, regarding about 80% of its scope uh, in terms of employees, turnover, and technology. So the, the, the only overlap regarded the gas-related part of the thermal power business of Alstom. Why? Because uh, uh, G, that was defined uh, uh, by the Commission as the global, uh, the global market leader, would have acquired the third, uh, again in the words of the Commission, uh, third largest competitor, uh, both in Europe and worldwide, uh, at worldwide level, excluding China, in a, a highly concentrated market. So basically the theory, when we decided to allocate uh, the topics uh, with Pierre, I thought that this was, should be something that uh, he should be talking about, or if I talk about it, uh, I will state that this is the theory of the Commission. In the decision, while it will be published, you will see uh, the theories of the parties uh, uh, 
and uh, what the Commission uh, uh, eventually found out. The theory of the Commission then, according to the Commission, uh, it was uh, a highly concentrated market and it was also a market with a high degree of product differentiation. For this reason, only four full technology competitors were present, could be considered as present in the market. So Alstom, GE, uh, MHPS, the Japanese uh, player, and Siemens. And so following this, uh, this deal, uh, according to the commission, the choice uh, of the customers uh, would have been limited, uh, would have been uh, more limited than it was before. And uh, why? Because Alstom was considered by the Commission as being one of the most significant players and one of the main competitors uh, in the market for uh, gas turbines uh, uh, in the 50 hertz market. And so the customers would have suffered from less choice, uh, likely resulting uh, uh, in significant price increases. Uh, the second, another part, another important part, and Pierre will be talking about that in a minute, uh, of the theory of the Commission is the fact that uh, the Commission considered that Alstom was one of the most innovative OEMs in the gas turbine market. So the transaction would have significantly reduced innovation. Regarding the commitments, so the Commission had these competitive issues. What did the party do to address these competitive issues? To address these concerns, uh, G offered to divest uh, the main technologically most advanced parts of Alstom gas turbine business and key personnel. And uh, here I'm basically, uh, there is uh, the DigiComp actually published uh, in March of 2016 a merger brief and the first case that is uh, being discussed is the General Electric Alstom case. So here I'm checking uh, what uh, the merger brief says about the remedies uh, because I want to be sure that I do not disclose any information that is not already in the public domain. At the time of this podcast, uh, the, 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 the final decision, uh, which runs uh, several hundreds uh, of pages, is not published yet. Not several hundreds of pages, uh, let's say a few hundreds of pages. So, regarding remedies, uh, G offered to divest the main technologically most advanced parts of Alstom business. Uh, it's important to note that the remedy was characterized by being mostly forward-looking, uh, so focused on new technology and R&D capabilities and personnel, uh, and so in included the Alstom technology for the GT26 and GT36, uh, the existing upgrades, and the pipeline technology uh, for future upgrades. Uh, why? Because the objective was to replicate Alstom innovation capabilities. And for this reason, uh, the divested business included also a large number of Alstom R&D engineers. And uh, as well, the divested business included the servicing contracts for 34 uh, gas turbines. Uh, sold in recent years. Why? Because normally gas turbines are always sold together with an initial service agreement that covers up to 15 years. So it's important that the vested business included this service uh, uh, contract so that the purchaser, the third party acquiring part of the Alstom business, uh, could actually be viable on the market. And uh, so I pass now uh, the floor to uh, Pierre to talk about the theory of ARM. 
So, so Jenny already uh, explained a bit the, the substance of, of our competitive concerns, but if we go into, into a bit more details, I think we can say that there were two legs to the, to the commission concerns, with a, a first leg of the theory of harm being relatively traditional, um, being basically the existence of horizontal overlaps in, in, in the activities of, of both parties in, in the HDGT market, uh, with possible, as we as we call it in, in legal jargon, possible unilateral horizontal effects, uh, in particular in the context of highly concentrated oligopolistic markets. So it's really important to to really understand that we are talking about four or five five players with very high barriers to entry, and post-transaction market shares that, irrespective more or less of the of the of the market definition, would have reached more than 50 percent. Um, second, of course, we went through a qualitative assessment of the of the positioning in this market of of the parties and and their competitors, and we we found based on internal documents from the parties, from competitors, and also generally speaking, the views of of market participants, uh, we found that indeed, G and Alstom were important and close competitors. So why? Uh, first, because both GE and Alstom had a large portfolio of turbines which were positioned in the same segments of this, of this market. Uh, we found that both, as regards 50, 50 Hz market, had a global presence with a comparable geographical focus. We found that both were regarded as, let's say, sound, reliable, proven technology providers. And we found, importantly, also for for EU customers, European customers, I will I will come back to that. Uh, both having best-in-class flexibility and also low pollutant emission capabilities with with their machine. Um, you throw on top of this, as I was saying, high barriers to entry and a very difficult, costly, and and lengthy repositioning, and you end up with having some fears on reduced choice for customers likely to, to translate into, into price impacts. That was really for the, the qualitative assessment, but we also underpinned this investigation and this conclusion by, by in-depth quantitative analysis based on the, on the analysis of the, of the bidding data of the parties. So when did they bid against each other and what were the results of those tenders? So three main types of analysis were, were conducted. The, the first one is what we call a frequency analysis, which is basically looking at who bid against whom. Uh, second, we looked at the winning probabilities, so who wins against, against whom when, when they indeed participate. And also, additionally, a, a margin analysis, so how do the, the margin of the respective players, uh, how are they impacted by the presence or not of, of other actors. And all of this combined uh, led us to, well, to conclude that there was evidence of, of possible price, uh, price impacts post-transaction. Uh, post Here, one, one very important point is that not only uh, were we fearing the possible reduction of competition between G and Alstom, but also because we had some evidence in the investigation that there was some likelihood that some technologies of Alstom could be discontinued 
by GE post-merger, there was an additional risk of losing some competitive pressure between Alstom and the other competitors in the market, not only on, on GE, which to some extent is a, is a specific feature of, of this case. Yes, and, and I think if I may add, Pierre, here, we, today we can agree that we disagreed, <laughs> in the sense that, of course, this was, uh, all these uh, topics were discussed uh, with the case team. There was a lot of cooperation between the, the parties uh, and, uh, and the, the, the European Commission case team, the DOJ team, uh, and so forth, with all regulators uh, that, were, that had different arguments. I think that uh, I will just throw this... Uh, this uh, this question out there, uh, which value you would need to give to internal documents, to pre-merger internal documents, because uh, sometimes, for example, you can say, I found this document where there is uh, this uh, engineer that is uh, talking about the capabilities in the future of this project, and uh, on the other side, uh, you could argue that, of course, if you're an engineer and you are presenting uh, your project to your boss, uh, you will say that your project is the best one. So I think that uh, mm. uh, yep. the, the, the case team was pointing to some documents and the parties were pointing to some other documents. Uh, it was interesting to see how this played out. Yeah. It's also... Uh an important factor that uh, that came into play when we discussed the financials of, of Alstom because one of the arguments of, of the parties was that basically Alstom was facing some financial constraints that actually meant that past evidence of bidding behaviors and also investments in, in R&D and, and so on because of the de deteriorating situation of, of Alstom's financials was not giving a a good view, in in a way, of the future competitive uh, pressure that that Alstom would be exerting in uh, in the future. I think here, if we if we stop on this for for a second on this issue of uh, of financials, it's uh, it's quite important to understand what uh, what the Commission did of of this evidence that that Alstom submitted, and I think we we agreed that basically the financial situation, of course could be relevant when assessing the future competitive pressure exerted by, by Alstom, but that indeed we needed to, to agree on what could be assessed as part of a, of a merger review. And we basically considered that the relevant comparison scenario for, for really evaluating the effects of the, of the transaction should be, well, basically the pre-merger operational and, and financial performance of, of Alstom's gas business and, and Alstom as a whole, and Alstom's best estimates, indeed, of the future performance of its gas business in the absence of the merger, as it was captured in its pre-merger forward-looking internal projections. And here, of course, as, as Gianni said, the question is how much value can you, can you put in, in, into these documents. But in addition, we also agreed that should be taken into account events that could reasonably have been uh, predicted to affect Alstom's financial standing absent the merger, in any event absent the merger, and also the possible alternative steps that Alstom could have reasonably taken or was possibly considering taking uh, in the absence, again, of the merger or as an alternative to the merger. So if you if you do a bit of a, of a mix of these various streams of, of evidence, this is, I think, the 
basically what, what we agreed to, to take into account when assessing the, the financial future standing of, of Alstom and the impact that it could have on its ability to, to compete. And we concluded that the financial situation did not have in the, pact, in the past uh, a material impact on its ability to, com to compete and was not likely, uh, not the most likely scenario uh, to have a significant impact on, on its ability to, to compete. Yeah, and in this I would, uh, of course, refer the people that are listening to this uh, podcast to read uh, the decision when, when it's published. I think that this decision, uh, in a way, moves uh, the law in uh, some selected uh, uh, issues and so especially on this issue of uh, of uh, you know like what you take into account uh, regarding uh, the counterfactual and uh, other issues like for example efficiencies and so forth whenever the decision is out there i highly recommend uh, reading it uh, just on the um, on the theory of farm i mean i mentioned the the first leg which was uh, the horizontal overlap issue um one point which was very much developed in, in this specific investigation was the innovation angle and, and the risk that this merger could pose in, in, the, in the relevant market for future innovation. And what we found out in, in the investigation, uh, again, based to some extent on internal documents and, and on market players' views, was that Alstom, to some extent, was stronger from a technological point of view than what its market shares, strictly speaking, would, would suggest. Uh, so in particular, uh, Alstom's machines were found to have best-in-class performance in terms of efficiency and in terms of, of flexibility. And we found, very importantly, that innovation introduced by Alstom in the past had an impact and pushed, basically, competitors to, to in turn, innovate as well. Um, we also found, quite crucially, that Alstom still had plans in the future to develop some basically machines, new machines uh, at the technology frontier, uh, very, very, very performant machines. Uh, also had plans to, to basically provide significant upgrades in its existing portfolio of, uh, of machines. And, uh, and here we link back also to the, to the financial resource issue, was still investing significant R&D resources in terms of investments head and headcount that we're actually comparing and on par with, um, with that of its two main, uh, two main competitors and well ahead of, of MHPS and, and Ansaldo. So overall, we were, we were worried that there would be a reduction uh, of overall competitive pressure and of overall incentives to, to innovate. And, and, and here again, just one additional point. What was the impact in our, in our assessment of the, the possible discontinuation of some of Alstom's products by, by GE? Uh, here we found additional concern that if this was the case, this would have an, a significant impact on GE's, uh, so the merged entity, so let's say GE's post-merger, uh, on GE's incentive and ability to develop future upgrades into the fleet for, for a number of reasons, but one of them being that the most ambitious upgrades are typically cross-financed through both the sales of new machines and, let's say, sales of upgrades in the existing fleet. So if you stop the new sales of the machine, you, you cut one of the two, two legs and half of the rationale for, for developing such, a, such upgrade. 
And Pierre, the source of your findings were, I guess, pre-merger internal documents. And so what were the sources that you had uh, your, for your findings? Uh, it was a mix, of course, of, uh, of pre-merger uh, internal documents, both of Alstom, uh, in the case of the details of the, the technology plans of, of Alstom, uh, of course, of GE, also uh, in terms of G's intentions for post-merger continuation or, or discontinuation of products. And of course, um, a lot of, of fact-checking and reality-checking uh, through comparisons with, with data from, from competitors yeah. to, to put this into perspective and, and understand what would be the impact on, on the market. Yeah, so here again the decision when it's published will give... Uh, uh, much more in detail view of the the arguments of the commission, the counter arguments <coughs> of the parties, and and so forth. So the proceedings were uh, very lengthy uh, because uh, we had uh, several uh, dozens of uh, requests for information involving uh, uh, several hundreds of questions. And here I'm citing from what uh, the deputy uh, director general. Uh, Esteva Mosso said uh, about uh, uh, this request for data and internal documents. Uh, it refers to moving towards what the U.S. investigators do in their investigations. Then we had a oral hearing, uh, and third parties were involved, to say the least. So uh, customers, of course, through market tests, but also competitors. And then for the remedies, uh, in, in procedural terms, uh, we can say that this case confirmed that the European Commission has a strong preference for structural remedies. Here again, I'm citing from speeches that uh, um, the Deputy Director General gave uh, on this case. This case has been uh, cited uh, in many speeches uh, of the hierarchy within the European Commission up to the Commissioner. And uh, uh, the press release of the European Commission says that uh, the commitments offered by GE had to allow the purchaser to replicate Aston's previous role in the market. So this is something that I think practitioners should write down, the fact that in this case the commitments uh, uh, were chosen to replicate uh, the, 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 the role of the target. And uh, the G. Alstom case, in terms of commitment, was a hybrid situation in the sense that uh, G. proposed uh, as third-party company acquiring the divested business, Ansaldo of Italy, but uh, uh, after this proposal, the authorization came conditional upon uh, the authorization from the European Commission and DOJ of the divestitor. So it's an hybrid situation between uh, a so-called fix-it-first and a front-buyer. And in terms of international cooperation, I think that uh, I found actually a speech by Commissioner Vestager laying it out nicely, uh, what was the cooperation in this case. I said that from the very beginning, uh, we did uh, uh, video conferences with both uh, the European Commission and the Department of Justice jointly, but the cooperation was uh, even uh, broader. So, uh, Commissioner Vestager said, I'm reading, at present, the European Commission has some form of cooperation with non-EU agencies in more than half of all cases that involve remedies or require in-depth reviews. We could see this in the acquisition of Alstom <coughs> by General Electric, which the European Commission and the United States Department of Justice cleared on the same day. But in addition to the U.S. DOJ, we also cooperated with competition authorities in Brazil, Canada, China, Israel, South Africa, and Switzerland. 
the Department of Justice in the U.S. had different concerns due to different conditions in the U.S. markets for heavy-duty gas turbines. But thanks to the very close cooperation, not only in relation to the substantive assessment, but in particular with regard to remedies, we managed to obtain aligned remedies for both EU and U.S. concerns. No, ju just quickly on uh, on this point, I, I think for for auditors it's important to keep in mind that we are not talking about the same market as such, uh, because we mentioned the, the difference in in network frequencies. Europe is 50 hertz, the US are, are 60 hertz. So when it comes to to heavy duty gas turbines, these are are, are very different com competition conditions. Yes. I agree, and uh, the, the the main message that I wanted to convey here is the importance of having a, a global coordinated strategy because regulators do talk uh, between uh, among them uh, even Absolutely. when the market uh, is not exactly the same and the concerns are not exactly the same. Yeah. Just um, to get to the meat of this podcast. On, uh, <laughs> To put things a bit uh, a bit more in 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 perspective, uh, in in the context of of European energy policy, I mean, we should of course start by saying that this was assessed uh, as any merger case on the basis of the application of of competition law and nothing else. Uh, we should we should be very clear on this. Now, why did we find some relevance? For those markets, there there was some discussion with the parties on why do we want why do we care so much about basically gas-fired power plants at a time where they are completely struggling to even make any sort of money on the on, on electricity markets and when many of those are are being mothballed or or even shut down. Um, I think we we tried here to again take a bit of a medium to to long-term perspective. Uh, to to assess a bit the, the importance of, of this technology for, for the future of, of the European electricity and, and energy markets. And it's very much to be understood in the context of higher renewables penetration. I mean, we have set some, some targets uh, now in, in, in the current renewables directive to reach 20% uh, renewables by, by 2020. Uh, most member states are, are developing very, very ambitious plans uh, to to increase the share of renewables in their in their energy mix to to, to meet their respective targets. Uh, in this context, we have more and more variable generation of of electricity. What this means is that to cater for this increased volatility in the in the production, we need to to unleash all sources of flexibilities that we can find in the in the electricity markets and the energy systems in in general there are various sources of, of flexibility i mean the the obvious ones are interconnections among uh, across member states of course um, storage can play a, a very significant role in the future demand response can play a very significant role as well but of course we will still have to rely on some let's say, conventional generation capacities with some very good capabilities in terms of, of flexibility. So assets that are able to, to ramp up, ramp down, uh, start up easily uh, to cater for, for the volatility of the, of the system. And in this context, uh, we found out, as, as I mentioned previously, that some of Alstom's technology was, let's say, at the frontier, at the technology frontier, when it came to to flexibility. So just again to to, to put a bit of of context, um, 
in the short term a depressed market for 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 let's say new generation assets based on on gas in Europe but if you take a medium to long term uh, perspective the need for flexibility that can be provided by 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 gas fired power plants and in this context also the role of gas Uh, relative to coal, because coal, to some extent, is also able, uh, depending on the technology, to provide some flexibility. And and here, when when you're talking about, of course, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and and also in the context of the of the reformed ETS, uh, we would see uh, in the future uh, a switch from from coal to gas. So again, some some significant role for for gas to play in the future European energy system. So we get to the conclusion of this. Uh, my conclusion is this: on this is uh, how how difficult, uh, how normally uh, I used to, uh, I use the term of uh, uh, a marathon in sprint mode. That was uh, what was this case, and so how important it is uh, uh, to plan ahead. So not rely only on commercial negotiations for these huge deals in uh, uh, sectors that are so important at this point, uh, uh, such as uh, energy, but uh, plan ahead a strategy, a global strategy, a coordinated strategy. Uh, try to have uh, on your side, uh, you know, like the best uh, external advisor with uh, uh, the possibility of advising uh, on uh, throughout the world. Uh, and uh, and yes, of course, uh, uh, the fact that uh, you have on the other side of the table uh, uh, excellent uh, teams uh, like uh, in uh, in Europe, uh, the European Commission, DOJ, uh, uh, and also the regulators throughout the world uh, helps in getting to the solution. Just um, just a couple of words on the on on the policy side. I think we we try to stress a bit. Um, Some of the of the key features, and to some extent, some of the the new features of of this case, and I think in particular the the assessment of innovation uh, here played a played a, a crucial crucial role, and basically, generally speaking, forward looking dynamic uh, assessment rather than a traditional static price analysis uh, in in many in many ways prevailed here in this in this case. Okay, so perfect. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Jenny.